Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 20. I want to return to our study in Genesis today. While you're turning there, let me just kind of do an overview, a reminder of this series and where we've come from and where we are headed. When we started this series in Genesis, we we kind of outlined the entirety of the book by three big questions. And the first question that we looked at is, where do I come from? Where, where in the world did I come from? And we looked at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and we talked about provenance or origins, places of beginning, and how God has put all things into place because he is our beginning and how important that is for us. The second question that Genesis uh, addresses for us is the question of where or why am I here? Why am I here? And this question addresses the issue of purpose. Anyone who has lived at some point in time has asked, why am I here? And sometimes it's not the meta-narrative of life we're looking for. It's just the, you walked in to Walmart and you can't remember why I'm here, right? But that's a microcosm of the big question. Why am I here? I find myself asking that a lot these days. I get out and I think, why am I here? That's a whole other issue though. We won't go there today. And we're pursuing that idea of purpose in life. We, we want to know we exist for a reason. The third question that we will pursue, chapters 38 through 50, where am I headed? Where are we headed? And, and, and it'll provide for us perspective on life. And understanding where we're headed, we see even where we are so much more clearly. You see, the answers that we find, they, they do something for us. They, they form our understanding of God. And that's what God is wanting to do through his word. And it's only through an accurate understanding of God that we come to correctly and rightly understand ourselves and others and how it is that we view the world and to understand our daily life. And because these questions are so important and because of what it provides for us and the answers we find, where we search becomes of utmost importance for us. You see, God speaks to each of these questions in the Bible, and specifically in Genesis, as he leads us through the narrative of his working out into the world. As we search for these answers, there are many means, but all of the answers are found in one source, and it's not a thing, it's not an ism, it's a person. His name is Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we were created by him, we were created through him, and we were created for him. And because of that, we understand that, that this true life for which we long is found only in him. And as we continue to walk through this second question of purpose, why am I here, and to pursue the understanding from God for that, we'll understand that that, that God's revelation to us not only reveals all things from the beginning, but the revelation of that is a very invitation to us to join Him in His work and what He is doing in the world through the personal relationship that we have in Jesus 
Christ. And I want you to know that today. If, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're, you're invited today to put your faith in Him and to believe and to begin to walk into this greater purpose that God has for you in your life. And so this is an introduction to the foundation of, of God's covenant for us. This promise that He has cut deeply to secure for us our redemption and within which we find the purpose of our life and mission with God. Let me walk through the chapters that we've covered so far very briefly, but just to kind of remind us where we are. And for those of you who didn't walk through earlier parts of this with us, you'll kind of know how we formed that. When we get to chapter 12, God begins to introduce his covenant to us. And in Genesis chapter 12, he calls a man by the name of Abram to follow him by faith. And he promises him a blessing. And this blessing will be one that's far beyond his own life. Far greater than he could consider. But there's no real definition to it. It's just go. Where? I'm going to show you, but you have to go first. And so Abram does that. Chapters 13 and 14, we begin to learn how it is that a, a right worship of God is the established way in which we are to follow God. Now, when I say right worship of God, I don't just mean like we sometimes reduce the meaning of worship to, a, well, we're going to worship with the church and it's an hour a week that we gather with a group of people. But I mean more in the holistic sense of that all-consuming love for God where, where worship is established as the right way to relate to God in an all-consuming, all-life-consuming kind of way. So it's the whole of our being being given for the whole of knowing Him. And we see that in verses 13 and 14, or excuse me, chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis. And then in chapter 15, we see where God comes back to Abram in a vision and he, he establishes the covenant by defining it a little greater. And he takes him outside in the middle of the night one night and he says, Abram, look up. Look at all the stars. Aren't they beautiful? Yes, God, they are. And he says, count them if you will, if you can. But the way in which I intend to bless you is far greater than anything you'll be able to conceive of. These stars don't even begin to reflect the numerous ways I'm going to bless you. And he spells out the covenant for him. He gives him a little more detail about that and how he's going to give uh, he and Sarah a son. That doesn't seem so odd except for their 80 and 90 years old. So they're past what the scriptures say, those birthing years, right? I, I, I think they passed them a little before that. But anyway, you, you understand what, what he's saying. And then in chapter 16 through 19, we see where Abram and Sarah, they're, they're following God. So there, there is this faith that they have given to God and are following him. But, but, you know, as the Proverbs says, a man creates his direction, but it is God who establishes his steps. You see, God's not just asking us to follow in the general sense but God is laboring for us to follow in the everyday moment sense as well. And we really begin to see that in chapter 16 through 19 as Abraham and Sarah are confronted with some situations that challenge them, that, that create fears within them. And, and they begin to kind of supplant God's plan with their own agenda at times. 
And God rescues them from this. God takes care of them in the midst of this. He not only forgives them, but he redeems them of their sin when they repent from this. And, and God gives to them a sign of the covenant. I am going to do this for you and in you and through you. And he gives to them the sign of circumcision to say, Abraham, this is my promise. I want you to know that I am going to do this. And then he gives them another promise that a child will come. Again, big promise. You see, what you're going to learn today is Abraham loved the promise of God. But when he encountered God's plan, he had some problems. And that's where God wanted to work in his heart and in his life. Today, as we go to Genesis chapter 20, we're going to see how God's faithfulness and God's long suffering holds Abraham and Sarah even in the midst of their own unfaithfulness, to show his faithfulness, and even in the midst of their sin, to bring about his righteousness in them. Let, let me outline this in five, what I call five distinctives of God's covenant. Why is this so important? Because God's covenant established here outlines our salvation for today. That's why this is so important, friends. Because we're looking to what we know to be accomplished in Jesus Christ. And we understand it from what God has set forth from the beginning through Abraham. Here's what we learn. Distinctive number one is this. That in God's covenant, God is the covenant. God is the covenant. He is the covenant maker with man. This was not Abram's idea. It was God's idea. God came to Abram. God called Abram and brought him into a relationship with him. Abram didn't just bring God alongside him to do what he wanted to do with him. God is the covenant defender. Time and again against sin, both against Abraham and Sarah, but also in their own sin, God defends the righteousness of himself and in his own promise. And God is the covenant keeper. He is faithful to his word in all things. You see, the whole purpose of covenant is simply this, friends. In our salvation, God gets us and we get God. God gets us and, and we get God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that we, we are, excuse me, Ephesians 2, we are made alive together with God in Christ Jesus. Though we were dead in our sin, separated from God eternally, because of Jesus Christ, we're made alive to him and brought into that relationship with him. And so covenant with God from first to last is his. From conception to consummation, from regeneration to glorification, God is our covenant. The second distinctive mark of God's covenant is that God marks us as his own by Holy Spirit in us. He marks us as his own. Now, circumcision was the sign of the covenant, and it was a mark of the flesh that was given to Abraham. But in Christ Jesus, no longer is circumcision the defining mark of our salvation. Now, we are baptized by faith into him. And that word baptism means identification. So, as Romans chapter 6, verses 3, 4, and 5 teach us that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ by faith in him when we believe that we died our death in him because he died our death for us and and our sin has been separated from us by the grave that he was placed in for us 
And when he came out of the tomb and was resurrected, so shall we in like be resurrected with him. And because of that, as the prophet Ezekiel says, when God gives us this new heart to know him, he puts his Holy Spirit within us. And within us, the Spirit circumcises our heart to know God. Whatever we knew about God without the Spirit is not the same as knowing God because he is living in you. Listen to me, friends. This is absolutely distinctive of Christianity. And it's so important for us to understand because I am convinced in a culture like our own that is so highly churched, you almost can't drive by a block of the street without passing another building that reminds you of it. We've attached Christianity Onto everything we want it to be. And we've not considered what God says it is. And until we've been made alive with him. Until we've been born again. And the spirit of God has come into us. To live in us. And has circumcised our heart. To receive from him. And to walk with him. We are not yet his. Some of you may find yourself in that place this morning. I would never do anything to discredit any heritage of faith that you've been given. But I would be disobedient to God if I didn't tell you today that only by His forgiveness of our sin and inhabiting us by His Spirit will we walk with Him for eternity. And so the Holy Spirit comes into us and the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God is the seal of God set upon us and it guarantees to us that we are His inheritance. God marks Christians as His own by His Holy Spirit within us. The third distinctive of the covenant is that God commands our faith by His Word to walk in obedience to Him. He commands our faith by his word to walk in obedience to him. The living word, which is the Bible, that Jesus Christ in print brings faith in its hearing. And that is the means by which God's grace continues to flow to us and to empower us as we walk with him. You see, God has not called us to perfection for him. He's not called us to perform for him, but God has called us to holiness in him. There's a big difference there, friends. One places all of it on you. And you will always walk away from God embittered and frustrated with Him. But the other places you in Him and surrender for Him to work in you. So God has called us to holiness in Him. And that holiness from within is lived out through obedience by faith to His Word as we walk with Him. That's the third distinctive. The fourth is that God watches over His people, but He judges sin and wickedness. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 12 quoting Psalm 34. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see some of you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and you, you've walked with God. You've known his faithfulness and his love for you. But because of situations or circumstances that have arisen in your life, you're threatened with doubts and with fears. Without and within, the hymn says, 
Some come by pressure from outside and some are developed from pressure within. But nonetheless, this distinctive of God's covenant wants to remind you he is watching over his people. He cares, he hears, he sees, he loves, he works for us. All of these are true. But the face of the Lord, First Peter says, is against those who do evil. God is the watcher of his covenant people. The fifth distinctive of the covenant is that God leads his people to declare the praise of his name on the earth. God leads his people to declare the praise of his name on the earth. You hear us say it so many different ways and at so many times, but do not misunderstand if you are a Christian. It is the will, it is the intent, it is the purpose, it is the plan, like day by day, step by step plan of God for the glory of his name to go forward by the faithful confession and witness of his people. You're part of that plan, Christian. It's not, just rec- uh, it's, not, it's not just held only to some or a few. It's for all. God's mission in the world is the reason Christians remain. And this, friends, this is our purpose in life. You say, why has God done all of this in his covenant? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, we're talking about Jesus Christ here where the fulfillment of God's covenant comes to full bear for its completion. Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, we need to understand what God is establishing in his covenant because he fulfills it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is his promise. Jesus Christ is his plan. And that's for us each and every day. And until you walk with God by faith through a personal relationship with Jesus, you cannot know God's purpose for life. The key to purpose in life is God's covenant salvation through Jesus Christ. And that is why I want to introduce what we're talking about in Genesis chapter 20 today because we are right on the precipice of the apex of God's revelation of his covenant, which we will see next week. But this week we need to prepare ourselves because there are things transpiring in this world and in our life that threaten to distract us and deter us from understanding it. Go with me to Genesis chapter 20, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 for us before we continue. Genesis 20, beginning in verse 1. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Wow. Whoa. You know, the guy that just sinned against you and all your people, he's my prophet. Take her back to him and let's get this thing straightened out. God's faithfulness and long-suffering, even in the midst of our doubts, our fears, and our sin. Listen to me, friends. I don't know where you are with God today, but what you need to hear is this. That for those who are looking to Him and walking with Him by faith in Jesus Christ, you will not perform perfectly, but God will. His loving kindness towards you has no measure or end. And I appeal to you today to trust His faithfulness and to follow Him in obedience. You see, all that God had done for Abraham, this was not a new situation that came up. When they came to the county line, so to speak, where Abimelech was the king, what transpired, but they were stopped at the border. And and Abraham, because he feared what might happen to himself if he told them that Sarah was his wife. I mean, we've already rehearsed this. We've seen him do it one time and get called to repent because of it. But yet one more time, he brings it back up. And so he's convinced Sarah this is the best path for them, even though in his own mind it's to protect him and it exposes Sarah. So he convinces her to tell a half-truth a second time to protect him. His fear internally justified within him that a half-truth was wholly acceptable and it exposed his wife and all of his family to great danger. Not to mention in his own mind how he was sacrificing the plan of God by subverting it with his own. And he brings judgment not only on his own family, but he brings judgment upon on Abimelech, his house, and even his whole kingdom. But listen, friends, listen. God is working sovereignly his redemptive plan. God is our covenant. He's the covenant maker. He's the covenant defender. He is the covenant keeper from first to last. So he comes to Abimelech in a dream, and he warns Abimelech of looming judgment. And Abimelech appeals to God, a God he doesn't even know, but he appeals to God out of the innocence of his heart and the integrity of his hands. In other words, he says, I have not defiled her. And God says, yes, you haven't done that because I kept you from doing that. Why? Because I have a greater plan for Sarah that is far beyond just you. And so God acknowledges that, sends him back to Abraham and tells him that even though Abraham's the one who sinned, he's still God's prophet and he's still working through him. Go back to him, make it right, and I'll bless you through that. You see, friends, as we continue in this chapter, verses 8 through 13 give us some deep insight to something taking place in Abraham. There is a fear that, that, that is arising from within Abraham. And what Abraham is doing is he is, he is holding to a portion of his own plan out of fear. Look at verse 13. Abraham says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is when Abraham made the plan for how he would respond in these moments. Instead of trusting God, Abraham said, this is the kindness you must do to me, telling Sarah, at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my 
brother. This was the wild card that Abraham was holding in his back pocket so that when everything was against him, he could pull it out and he could somehow subvert God's plan and make his own. Fear caused Abraham to doubt God. And in doubting God, which is a wholly inappropriate perspective and understanding of God, it also caused him to project his own blame onto other people, onto other situations, to predetermine without fact or any evidence how they would respond and be able to justify his own dealings accordingly. When he is confronted, he confesses. Yes, he said, I did do this, and this is why, because I've been planning it from the very beginning. But Abraham held to that one portion of his own plan just in case God didn't come through. You see, we have no doubt here about what's transpiring. Abraham's greatest hindrance was not the great mountain that stood in front of him. It wasn't the threat that was going to come against him. That was not Abraham's problem here. Nor was it what God had not done. It's not like Abraham had never even been faced with this exact situation and seen God be faithful time and time and time again. What was transpiring that Abraham was holding on within to one little portion of his own plan and he kept using that to subvert God's plan in his life. Why did he do that? Because he wondered how would God ever come through for him? Listen friends, Abraham liked God's promise. Some of you may find yourself here today. He really liked what God had promised for him. He just didn't always fully agree with the way he was going to carry it out. Ever found yourself there? I call that Monday. And every other day that ends with D-A-Y. I mean, the threat is real, is it not? It's not removed from any of us. Sometimes we think that God's given us the meta plan. And we come to understand he's going to carry it out in the micro details. And Abraham's struggling there. Abraham held a lingering, unresolved doubt that God would not in some way, measure, manner, or form come through when he needed it most. And you know what you call that? Abraham was at the point of losing hope in God. Oh man, that is a razor's edge right there. He was at the point of losing hope in God. As long as Abraham's hope, ultimately that hope that not always recognized, but it's always present. As long as his hope remained in himself, in some kind of plan that he could throw in there at the last minute to kind of subvert that threatening situation, to make sure he had the immediate right decision so he wouldn't be inconvenienced, so that details wouldn't interfere with his forward progress. As long as his hope was seated in him, he would never have to hope in God. And friends, I tell you, that is the principal strategy sin implements in our life every day to try and thwart us, deceive us, and distract us from following God. Listen to this. Abraham is known as the father of our faith. And the father of our faith. Are you ready? He had a faith problem.
Listen to what Paul writes about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Why do we go here? Because this is how we really understand redemptively what's transpiring in Genesis. Against all hope, Paul writes of Abraham. Abraham, in hope, believed. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's so interesting because to read Paul's writing on that doesn't sound accurate to what we're reading in Genesis 20, does it? I don't know. It sounds like Abraham didn't have a lot of hope at the moment. But what did he do when he was confronted with his sin? He repented. He repented and he turned back in faith to God. You see, Abraham had a faith problem because there was an absence of faith and that was his problem. Often he knew it. Sometimes he didn't. But God was always faithful. How is it that we know that against all hope, Abraham in hope believed? Here's how we know, because he obeyed. That's what Paul is teaching us here. It was his obedience, even in the midst of sin, when he's confronted by sin. It wasn't his perfect performance. Abraham didn't get chosen by God because he's a stellar guy, more stellar than any of us. No, God chose Abraham because God is God. That's why he chose Abraham. And the righteousness that was Abraham's was not because Abraham was perfect in his performance, but because God was. That's how God works in his covenant, friend. That's what he's teaching us. And where he calls us, first of all, to repent by the conviction of his spirit, but ultimately to walk in the righteousness of the command of his word. God is calling us to faith. And when those fears from within and fears from without compound against us, ours is to repent and to turn from the way we were thinking about God, the way we were thinking about self, the way we were thinking about others, the way we were thinking about the world and to turn to think about all things as God says it is because he is truth and to trust in what he said even when the wild card is in our back pocket we pull it out and burn it instead of offering it on the altar only in obedience was Abraham's deepest fear unearthed and replaced by an unwavering faith From God. Listen to this, friends. We know Abraham believed because he obeyed. The closer Abraham got to God's promise, that thing he really loved and liked, like the cherished intimacy with God Himself, the closer he got to that promise, the more the situation really began to demand that he trust God more. God, this is hard. It's like we're growing up or something, right? It's not easy. And and the more the situation demanded that he trust God completely. And as the situation demanded he trust God completely, the more he had to learn a new depth of faith. And the more he was learning a new depth of faith, the more he was learning a greater faithfulness from God. Listen to me. You want God's promise for your life there's no promise that is anything like it and there's nothing else that can provide it but every day you walk with God will not be based on yesterday's successes it will be based on tomorrow's promise given to you today 
And friends, every day is going to bring you to the fresh new challenges that arise both from within and from without. And it's going to cause you to come to a conflict of belief. Will you trust in God or will you trust in yourself? Will you believe these things or will you hold to the things of God? And everyone is an opportunity. Are you hungry for a greater faithfulness of God? Are you just trying to hold on to yesterday's meal of his faithfulness? God was working in Abraham as he was working through him. Paul goes on in verse 22 of Romans 4 and he says this. This is why it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Not because he performed perfectly. No, there was no evidence for Abraham to be able to say, well, I've considered all the pros and cons. I've made my list of do's, don'ts of why this is a good decision or why it's not, which way is better than the other. All of those ways that we make decisions and Abraham Abraham was saying in all of this there's really no evidence to convince me that God is a better way but that promise he gives me is crazy man I can't get it away it's just it's a zinger in the heart I mean it makes me really excited for what life is all about but that command that comes to me wow I mean it just seems to trip me up every time now the reason it was credited to Abraham as righteousness is because he put his hope in God. And when you put your hope in God, it demands faith. It doesn't provide evidence. Evidence comes after faith has been given. So Paul continues, but the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. Uh-oh. This just got deeply personal but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see, the work Abraham was doing in obeying God was all about what God was doing in Abraham. And righteousness was credited to Abraham, not as he performed for God, but as he fully surrendered to God and to the work that he was doing to God's plan in God's way. When Abraham obeyed, God used him powerfully as he worked in him. Why? Because obedience is the proof of faith. Everything else is bloated talk until you walk the walk. God blesses Abraham and and he blesses him through Abimelech. And then Abimelech is blessed because of Abraham. You see, friends, when you obey God's command, you've believed God's promise to receive his blessing. That's when righteousness comes. You say, but I didn't think it was of works. It's not. It's of God's works, not ours. But so often we think that we can take God's promise And we can be exempted of his commands. No, his promise comes through his commands because that's where we trust him to follow him. Salvation by faith produces obedience by the same. Because righteousness is not credited to us when we think rightly about God. Righteousness is not credited to us when we feel deeply for God. Righteousness is credited to us when we believe to obey by faith in God's commands. Review Hebrews 11, the hall of faith's fame. 
And you will not find one person in the whole chapter whom righteousness was credited to because their doctrine was pristine and point on. You won't find anybody there who righteousness was accredited to because, oh, they just had all the feels. You will find each and every one whom righteousness was accredited to them when they obeyed. By faith, they did what God had commanded them to do. Oh, it took the right thinking. Matter of fact, it aligned the right thinking. It's not absent of emotion. Not saying that, friends. I'm telling you obedience is where it all comes together. Friends, here's what I want you to see today. God is working in you. He's working in you, Christian, to bring the fullness of his redemption to you as you trust to obey and declare the glory of his salvation in Jesus Christ to the world. This is your purpose for life, friends. It is God's plan for you, and he will be faithful to you in it. Might I offer to you today three reminders to pursue God's redemptive plan for your life and in your life. Ultimately, his purpose for you. Three reminders. Reminder number one, God's redemptive work is never dependent on your perfect performance, but it is advanced by your complete surrender to him. It will always be advanced by your complete surrender to him. Here's the crazy thing about the evil one. He tempts us saying that God will not be faithful. And then he accuses us that God couldn't be faithful. He tempts us to sin going, ah, it's not that big of a deal. God didn't really mean what he said. And then when we commit that sin, he's the first accuser. He's actually the only accuser, except for some of his minions walking on the face of the earth. Where does God come into that conviction to say that temptation is not true? And even when we fall into sin, to simply say, I stand ready to forgive you if you will repent and turn back to me. There is no exception that you can hold to that will enhance God's work in you or through you. What God calls you to do is trust Him and obey. Wherever you are, whatever you're confronted with today, whatever's causing fears to arise within you or pressing against you from the outside, it is merely an opportunity for you to remember where your hope lies regardless of how much the world says the situation is hopeless and to put your faith in God and to watch Him come through big time for you. And one of the greatest ways for you to do that is to remember how he's done it every time past. You see, I think Abraham failed this time and he'll fail again for one simple reason. He just failed to remember how God had been faithful with him. Let me ask you this, friends. Are you holding to anything that God's calling you to lay down today or to let go of? It's that ace in the hole for you. It's that wild card that you've got hidden in your back pocket. It's that little move that you can make that when you are threatened, you can actually believe that you will advance yourself more and you'll do it for God even. How kind of you. But God's not asked you to do that. He's asked you to trust him. Proverbs tells us, a man plans his way, but God orders his steps. Will you trust him? How will you know what that is? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you. He's maybe even now placing it on your mind and your heart. This is it. 
Or maybe you understand that every time you use it, every time you think of it, or every time you refer to that little one thing, it leads you into more difficulty and trouble. And you always find yourself having to repent to come back to God because it didn't do what you thought it would. The Holy Spirit will be faithful to you in that just as he was faithful to bring conviction to Abraham through Abimelech. The second reminder I offer to you today is this, that fear unaddressed and unconfessed only fuels doubts and unbelief that lead to sinful rationale of self-centered actions. I'm going to take a minute and let that kind of soak in. Unaddressed and unconfessed fear in you, holding that wild card in your back pocket, so to speak, will only fuel doubts and unbelief, and they will only lead you to self-centered actions that are completely justified in your own mind. Those actions will all be self-protective, self-preserving, and self-defensive. You see, we see the same action from Abraham many times because he's determined from the beginning. That's what verse 13 tells us. He decided that this would be his one get-out-of-jail-free card that he would use every time he was confronted with this situation. But friends, we know this. God had already planned to use these very kings that he did it with to bless him. God just didn't trust, or Abraham just didn't trust God's plan. And what happened was that fear fueled Abraham's doubt and it skewed his vision of God. This is where all wrong begins. You begin to see God in a way that is not true to his word. And when you see God incorrectly, you begin to see yourself under incorrectly. And you begin to see others incorrectly. And you begin to see situations incorrectly. Because when you have a skewed view of God, it creates a double-mindedness and an unstableness to always disobey and to act without faith in hard moments. And that disobedience from that double-mindedness also causes you to project your bias and presumptions on situations, how other people will treat you. And so you begin to justify what you're going to do by that very foregone conclusion without evidence, without an, oh, but you think it's rock solid in your mind. Turns out just to be a bunch of hot air. That's why James has a strong warning about how sinful disobedience affects us. That's why he says, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Because when you only hear and you walk away satisfied because you've, you've increased your thinking or you've increased your feeling, what happens is it deceives you and creates a double-mindedness in you and it fuels a bias from you. Fear fuels doubt to make us unstable in all of our ways. What am I going to do? Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust me? And so we walk without faith outside of God's will in our own sinful disobedience. And the rationale for it always feels airtight because we're protecting self, we're preserving self, we're defending ourselves, but it's always exposed as bloated unbelief. You see, fear-fueled doubt that leads to disobedience skews your view of God to self-preservation. Ask yourself this, is the fear that I am confronted with accurate in accordance to the word of God and his truth? Or is it confronting that? Because it always skews your view of God first for self-preservation. Secondly, it produces a self-defensive rationalization to justify sin. Are you trying to create your own measure of provision and protection? Or are you trusting God? God, I don't know where you're taking me. But I'm going to follow you regardless of what it costs me. And thirdly, it projects your double-minded bias onto others. 
for self-protection. You know what Abraham could have done when he got to the border? The same thing you and I can do. When we are confronted by a threat in this way, instead of lying to the person who needs to hear a faithful witness, we could share while we're there. Abraham said, you know what? I'm following God. I have no idea where I'm going. But I can tell you this. He's taken me every step of the way. You see how it subverts our faithful witness? The third reminder I give to you today is this. Pursuing God's redemptive purpose in your life comes as you walk by faith after His promise by the resource of His blessing. As you walk by faith after His promise by the resource of His blessing. God provides His promise to invite you into the intimacy of walking with Him by faith. His blessing is received as you walk with him by faith. And that blessing becomes a resource for the work that he's wanting to do in you. That's why we're commanded to be generous and to be a blessing out of the blessing that God has given to us. And then living in God's will by the resource of his blessing begins to clarify the purpose for our life. And the clarification of that purpose, it gives us direction. It brings us insight into what's taking place from God's perspective by the truth of his word. It gives us clarity and decisions. I've got two, I've got three, I've got ten ways I could go. But there's only one way that God's leading me in the midst of this. And so it gives us discernment for everyday life and decisions. See, we're trying to jump to the end. And God's saying, let's just walk. Let's just enjoy the journey. That act of obedience by faith and submission to God's command is the only means of conquering fear and walking in God's purpose for your life. God is working in you, Christian. To bring the fullness of his redemption to you as you trust to obey and declare the glory of his salvation in Jesus Christ to the world. Let's pray.